Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by the CME Group. You're listening to part two of my conversation with Marty Birken, the owner and president of Dunn Capital Management, Grant Jeffarian, portfolio manager of the Advanced Trend Program at Crable Capital Management, as well as Mike Buss, who is a director within the Capital Introductions team at Société Générale. We estimate that just in terms of our execution infrastructure, we're talking about having to support it with several $10 million, multiple $10 million worth of investment in execution alone. That doesn't manage, that doesn't really speak to all the other costs around data, you know, client relations, office space, etc. So, you know, really to break even with our trend following product, we'd have to run in the vicinity of $4 billion at our fee structure to break even. At the fee, char- the fee level we're charging for this product, even if that's all we were, mm. uh, was a trend far. Sure, Marcia, yeah, I I know that 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 you have an, a unique approach, as you already mentioned, to you know the way you charge fees. Um, so I'd love to hear your perspective to this new breed of products. And of course, as Grant al- uh, already said, I mean a lot of them were really created to capture in a cheap way. Uh, returns from trend following and therefore competing against trend following managers specifically. So, so how do you view this development uh, yourself? Well, so I have to ask myself, you know, where did the low fee products really derive from? And you know, it, it's basically large managers who have the capacity, they have the AUM to drop the incentive fee and just charge a management fee. And then you ask yourself, what's the motivation? Is the motivation to continue to make outsized profits or have they found that their AUM has come to such a size that it's difficult for them to make the same type of money they have in the past and now it's about asset accumulation. Uh, The Wintons of the world I mean, it doesn't take a genius to do the math on what a 1% management is on $30 billion. And that's paid annually, whether you make money or lose money. So when you talk about low cost, you have to ask yourself, what does low cost mean? I consider what we do is low cost because we don't charge a management fee. But nobody would say that our incentive fee is low. I mean, we charge a 25% incentive fee. And if there came a time where our returns were not 
competitive both on an absolute, because at Dunn, we've always been competitive on an absolute return basis. Trend following by its nature at the bare bones of it is an absolute return strategy, but it's never been known as a real strong risk-adjusted strategy. Uh, so what all our research in the last 10 years has been designed to increase the risk-adjusted returns. So we look at both of those, and if there comes a time when I'm not competitive at a 25% incentive fee, then I'd probably ratchet it back. Um, there's a lot of pressure on us to offer uh, you know, a management fee only type product, but it just doesn't seem right to me. If I can just go back to you, Grant, I mean, what's the, what's the incentive for a firm like yours, if I can be so bold to, to ask, to, to offer a flat fee product? I mean, I know you said you have combinations, but, but still, I mean, what's the incentive of, of uh, just to pick up on what Marty said, to really produce that great return when you're paying, being paid the same, whether you do it or not? Yeah. Well, you know, Crable's an interesting shop. We're, we're an interesting dynamic of, of a heavy research focus, and yet, you know, for the most part, we're relatively ego-free as a community at Crable. We're, however, that said, extremely competitive folks at the end of the day. You know, we, we want to make money for our investors. Our, our founder was a professional tennis player before, before he came, uh, became a, a professional asset manager. He still plays competitive tennis very competitively. You know, we're just, we're just a competitive group. Now, one of the issues we always had, which is fun for us, but our, our flagship multi-product that runs about $2 billion today has no correlation to anyone. We have peers in the sense that there are, there are other short-term systematic traders, but when our investors call, you know, they're not saying, you know, this manager did X, you did, you did something plus or minus X. That doesn't make any sense because we really don't have any correlation to anyone. Uh, which is exciting. However, uh, the idea of having a product that has a peer group that's not only expansive, but has been around for decades, that has direct mandates from the world's largest pensions and endowments who really need the exposure, a product that puts us in a position where our entire team can look at the returns really on a daily basis and say, how are we doing? Gosh, that's exciting. So there are ancillary benefits way beyond the revenue we generated. And make no mistake, you know, we're making, generally speaking, one and zero, and that's very, very helpful. We, we maintain an extremely expensive operational budget to do what we do, particularly around execution and research. It's useful, but it's pretty exciting to have a product that we can actually compare, and that really feeds the competitive nature. It's exciting. Sure. Niels, can I pipe in with a, a question? I, something that in, in my, my tour is a you know, quite surprised. I, by the way, good amount of emphasis. I keep hearing pension and endowment, and uh, you know that's been a good part of my time visiting some of these folks. And you know, in in almost shocked to hear, uh, okay, there's a three person investment team, you know, looking after eight billion dollars, and oh by the way, we you know did our own simple trend models and we run it in house and to me i it was kind of jaw dropping and i'm just kind of curious uh, do you think that and that's relatively recent um, to both of you is that what are some of the pitfalls of that is that a bit naive just thoughts yeah well it it's it's not that recent i mean people have started moving that direction 10 years ago one of the largest allocators in the world actually took their trend falling in house 
And for the first few years of that experiment, they actually outperformed the marketplace. It always works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's usually a bad ending. I really believe there, there's no question anybody, you can take a high school student and give them a textbook and they'll design a trend following system. The problem is in the risk management of the trend following system. And, you know, the worst drawdown is always there to be beaten by the next drawdown. And that's just the facts of the world. And uh, it can be pretty painful. So I, I, I think it is naive. And, you know, a lot of people fool themselves in their research because data mining is a, a big problem. And a lot of people don't even realize that they've data mined and come up with this wonderful system until they run it themselves. And maybe it works for a while. But when it doesn't, it's a hard lesson and an expensive lesson. Well, you know, as Oscar Wilde once said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. <laughs> so maybe that is what is going on. Uh, Mike, from where you sit, who's winning the battle between the low-cost products and the traditional trend-following products? Or can they actually exist I happily think I think they can coexist. I mean, we're definitely seeing that. Some of these public mandates, which are, again, public, you can go to the uh, websites, you can see that there's RFPs. Unfortunately, those RFPs tend to be with at least a, you know, a 10-year track and a billion or two, or two billion AUM. So it does eliminate quite a few of the, of the players, and that's kind of unfortunate, And I think, in my view. And I, I would say It's always kind of been that way. It's always been very steep, but it seems even steeper now where, you know, where the AUM goes to those with AUM. A quick side note is Sakchen launched a CTA mutual fund index, which is both single and, and, and multi-manager. I think it was the beginning of last year. I, I would say the interesting part of that is we took the top 10 that are open for investment that were willing to share returns with us and all top 10 said, yes, we are. And I thought the interesting part there was the largest is what I've heard at X billion. I think you guys know who. But the 10th largest is just 100 million. So, you know, it's kind of very, very concentrated in very few hands. Sure. Absolutely. It's a very difficult market. I mean, we just got into the mutual fund market a year ago. And I have been ecstatic at the fact that we've raised $100 million in a year, which You know, I look at all the other guys out there and there's a lot of shops that have gotten involved and they just can't get any traction whatsoever. And you're exactly right. There's a few big players that basically gobble up all the money. And you really, it's a twofold process. You've got to have returns. And secondly, you have to educate the, you know, the RIA community on what managed futures does. And that's, As an industry, that's something we don't do very well. We really need to do a better job of letting the public know what it is we do and why it's an advantage to them. The idea that a person has to be a qualified investor to get access to this type of investment is just ludicrous to me. And everybody at every level should have access to this. And they should have access at a reasonable cost. And that's part of the problem with the mutual fund space is it's just too expensive to really make money. And the risk that's being taken 
all the risk is on the investor, right? He's the only one taking risk. Everybody else is getting paid. So that's, that's the real problem. I just want to go back to the point brought up before about some big institutions or investors trying to set up their own internal trend-following approaches. And of course, we've seen some, you know, we could say lackluster returns in the trend-following space in the last few years. Is there any link between more and more people getting into trend-following and returns maybe not being as strong as they used to be? which is an argument that you sometimes hear when you deal with investors. I don't know, Martin, do you have any view on this or have you seen any evidence of this? Well, I don't know that I've seen evidence of it. It has to play a part, though. I mean, the more people you get occupying the space, the harder it is to move the money around. But I have to believe that the poor returns that have, you know, the industry as a whole has seen since the credit crisis is more attributed to you know, the control of the economy by central banks and an orchestrated effort by central banks around the world to control the flow of money, which hopefully we're starting to see that decorrelation come back into the marketplace, which is going to be really good for trend followers, managed futures as a whole, and the number of opportunities that become available will be greater. Yeah. What about the short-term space and the for that matter, the trend-following space seen from your uh, eyes, Grant. What do you make of this recent uh, period? Is there any link? It's As Marty indicated, I think it's difficult to know with certainty. On the short-term side, it's unlikely a function of asset growth in short-term trading because it's just so challenging to trade in a 24-hour hold duration with any size the, the number of round turns we do, you know, we're, we're probably amongst the, the biggest five futures traders in the world, maybe even top three. It's difficult to know for sure. But none of the others that populate that count of largest are asset managers. They're all high-frequency trading firms. So, you know, we have a, a decent body of data to suggest that it's difficult to plow a lot of money into those time frame strategies. So the point there is I don't think we've seen meaningful growth in short-term systematic trading because it's just so challenging to pull off. So there, no. I think what we're talking about instead is a generally sort of a long-term low volatility period, of course, with some volatility spikes here and there. Uh, but for the most part, absolute volatility has been relatively low globally for some time. That's been challenging. We love markets to be a little spicier. We, so we haven't had a, a, a large number, for instance, of, let's say, uh, S&P days that opened or closed more than 1% higher or lower. The percentage of those days as a function of all days is really quite low. We love to feast on those types of days in our short-term trading. So I think there it's less an asset growth question, more of an absolute volatility question. In the trend-following space, the interesting dynamic that you see is the larger a trend follower gets, typically the lower their volatility profile gets, and the more they prefer to move into other markets. And the reason that that's relevant to your question is because perhaps on the face of it, institutional asset managers in the managed futures and trend-following space in particular have grown. It may be that their trading footprint has not which is unfortunate for investors because you theoretically pay more for less. 
from an assets trying to be plowed into these strategies, it also becomes difficult to justify that the assets have really grown in the managed future space. I don't think that they necessarily have in the trend space. We certainly haven't experienced it in slippage. You know, we, we run our entire trend following product in terms of our back test to what we actually get in the market at about 15, 16 basis points. And that includes exchange costs, clearing execution. So it's very, very low. We have not seen that change very much, even in this year. So from a, an ability to hit where we want, we, our model suggests we should get filled, et cetera, really no impact. So what are we looking at? Well, we're, we're talking about, you know, obviously an election year this year, we're talking about a tremendous amount of government intervention over the last really post 08, really. So, and, and relatively sharp or, or clear indications of risk on, risk off sort of situations and absolute low volatility, most of which suggest that it's going to be difficult for Trendforce to make money. Of course, we did have big moves in 2014, largely around what we saw to the flight to quality to the US dollar. And, many trend fars benefited from that. So I think what we're talking about really for institutional investors as they think about trend falling is the reality that you want a trend far, as Marty indicated, that understands the control of the downside in an average environment, is essentially trying to capture, capture carry and, and really overcome whatever fee load they have while things are not great, and then make a tremendous amount of money when trends actually happen, which may be every five years, three years, two years, it's difficult to know, but that's what we're there for. Kind of a side question to that, guys. You know, we've been in this 30-year cycle of lower interest rates, which I think, you know, with a, with a you know, roll curve always mostly being positive, meaning positive carry. I mean, in interest rates, let's just go with a what if. We start going the other direction. How challenging is that going to be for shorter to longer-term trend, trend followers? Uh, to tell you the truth, I, this comes up all the time. I, this assumption that long-term trend following has basically profited because of the 30-year bull market in bonds is just crazy to my mind. Um, there's definitely an interest rate advantage when you're doing managed futures. But, um, I mean, if we went into a 20-year bear market, I can't think of a better thing for our industry. I mean, it, it would be a windfall. Uh, the fact that we can bet on the price falling just as easily as betting on the price rising uh, makes it very simple for what we do. I, I don't know about the short-term space, but I would imagine the short-term space wouldn't be effective whatsoever. It doesn't care if the market's going up or going down. Would it? I mean, just like us. Marty, but you fight carry if you're going to be short interest rate futures. I mean, if we reverse the trend in rates say for the next 30 years, and rates went all the way back into low double digits or higher, theoretically, you don't make money as a trend for being short interest rate futures. You just don't. Well, so... Because you have to pay the carry, right? Right, but if you look at the 70s, we're probably the only uh, long-term trend follower that was around during the 70s, which you had a long period of raising interest rates. We made a lot of money during that period. Yeah, but but... Sure, but you have to overcome the carry. Well, but you're not, interest rates don't just affect the bonds. So it's all the other associated markets that also react to that interest rate. And if you're not necessarily making as much money in the bonds as you would if you were on a 30-year pool market, you're still making money there. But your currencies, you know, all the commodities, gold, energies, all these other markets are moving also. And 
the movement of the interest rate affects everything. I mean, that's, I'm still convinced that all that we're doing is trading interest rates. And every other market is affected by the same thing, is interest rate. That's, yeah, that's the clarification I was looking for. Because to suggest that it's easy to short interest rate futures and make money in rates is likely not going to be accurate if the speed at which rates change is equivalent in reverse as right. we've seen in 30 years. So you're not going to make money in interest rates as a trend far. Not going to happen. It's flat. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can just mathematically, you can reverse it. You can flip well, the carry and it's clear. But, but theoretically, you should find tremendous opportunity in the other three sectors. And I don't disagree. Right. And to be clear, and this is maybe a controversial statement, trend following, as, and I kind of hinted at that, this, Really, trend following is carry capture the vast majority of the time, except for crisis alpha, you know, the ability to flip and take advantage of, of crisis moments. Yeah. So what you do have is a, a business that does not leverage money, of course. We use very little capital to actualize our positions, which means the vast majority are suddenly able to earn interest on deposit because we're not using it. So you may not make money on the on the directionality of rates, but now all of a sudden you're earning essentially carry on your cash. Right. right. So uh, you have that benefit, which, you know, you, you it's it's easy to forget that looking back in the 80s, 90s, turtles did great. Yeah, but 10% plus of those returns were essentially interest on cash. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's nice. What other space has the ability to accrue that type of return? Everybody else is deploying leverage for the most part. So you know, there's this tremendous give and take there. I think Marty's right. We're going to see, theoretically, you see a lot of volatility elsewhere. So you make directional profits. You're not going to make money being short interest rate futures. I don't think so. Well, the but, other thing you got to remember is interest rates don't go up lockstep. No. So even though we're in a 30-year bull market, there's a long period of that time when we were short interest rates in our positioning. And the same will be true on the other side of that. Of course... You know, we've been long interest rates for five years until just recently. And four years ago, I sat in front of a room saying, who would have believed that we were long interest rates last year? I mean, that's crazy. And we're still long, and I still think it's a bad position. And we've made, you know, we've made a lot of money being long interest rates when nobody thought you should be long interest rates. So because we're systematic, the market will dictate you know, everybody in this room is systematic, so it doesn't matter what we think. Nobody cares what we think. It's all about the market and the prices, and we react accordingly. I want to be mindful of the time we have together today, and um, as this recording is being done in December 2016, we can look back on a year that was full of surprises, especially on the political scene. So I just want sort of a brief comment from all of you as to whether you've learned something new from a year like this that certainly has been a little bit different. And why don't we stay with you, Marty, on this one? What's your takeaway from 2016? Oh, wow. What a a year. I think it goes to show what you think you know you don't know. We were at a new high in July, which, you know, what another great year we were having and boy the things the last two months have really come off i think we're in a transitional period i'd like to see what everybody else thinks about that you know everybody's been waiting for bonds to finally turn over and interest rates to go up and i mean are we in that transition where we're moving from lower rates to higher rates i don't know but 
It seems like we are. And I think that'll be a good thing for the industry for the future. Grant, what, what about your takeaways from 2016? Well, I mean, if it's hard to it's hard to talk about purely from an investment perspective, given the amount of, I think, fear that the world has exhibited across various elections, whether it's Brexit or our U.S. election. It made it very difficult to trade. There's no question that level of uncertainty. We'll see. I think, I think, you know, typically we've seen technological leaps that happen every so often and they've accelerated over history. It seems like a very grandiose statement to conclude a podcast. It's just, I think the, the world is somewhat poised for a relatively massive technological leap to, to potentially save us from an overindulgence in cheap, in cheap money, essentially, that's flooded the marketplace. We'll see. You combine that with with clear fear and anxiety that that we're seeing across some of the most developed countries in the world, particularly around issues like immigration, and it sets up for some pretty interesting impacts on the financial markets. It's a shame it's been tough for us to trade this year. I think we've all learned from it. There's no question, particularly on our short-term side. You know, the number of new concepts that we've we've been able to include. We probably had about 20% alpha turnover, perhaps, in our multi-product. That's that's a general idea, but the, the the reality is, I it's been ample ground to get better, and we hope we've done so. Sure, Mike, any um, take? You know, not to sound melodramatic, but moments of pure joy balanced by sheer terror <laughs> this last year. So very very challenging, including you know from a banking perspective as well. But you know, I think the, all of us in this room would say, you know, if you can predict. What's going to be a good next year is going to be an awesome year for CTA. I mean, who can really do that? We really can't. That being said, we have a new administration coming in and maybe a little bit more of a laissez-faire attitude and maybe a little bit more let markets be markets. And I think that can be a good thing. Sure. So far, and we're coming to the end of our conversation, I've been asking all the questions, but I also spoke to you about maybe you all had one or two questions that you would like to ask each other to change things up a little bit. So who wants to go first, who have some interesting questions that they might want to raise with? Yeah, Mike. I want to throw it out to the both of you. It sounds real sexy, you know, machine learning. Oh, you know, we're going to have the machines. What are your views on, you know, machines deciding what the best strategy um, is there is there merit is there alpha or is it an, an intellectual exercise all right I, i guess i'll take a stab it's ridiculous for somebody sitting in my chair to try to answer that question authoritatively what do i know there are a lot of smart people deploying tremendously bright ideas in quant learning and metadata concepts etc one thing that we have always focused on at Crable has been the intuitive nature of our system development. And we're 100% systematic, but the reality is every line item we have in terms of our individual systems has a reason to be. And you can sit with our researchers and they'll tell you why it makes money. That said, recently we added a team that it, we, we believe to be on the forefront of what's happening in signal processing and, and machine learning. The learning curve there is tremendous. Getting involved with early stage manager startups over the last several years, I've seen a number of very brilliant people come out of Silicon Valley and other places and flounder 
with technologies that were incredibly adept at pricing various other sort of price pricing structures outside of the markets. And it's challenging because it's, in, it's, a, it's absolutely impossible to know what the market's going to present you with next. Now, after five to 10 years for some of these guys, I think we start to see some unbelievable work. We're not yet at the 10-year mark, I think, generally, so it's going to be very challenging. But I believe my answer is likely to change in three to 10 years. It's just not there yet. Well, so we've looked really hard at this space over the last five years. And we have vetted, we've talked to, we've even traded with some people doing this. And I agree with Grant, we're not there. I mean, the intelligence level of the people doing this stuff and what their, the technology involved is phenomenal. And it's incredibly fascinating. But we haven't seen anything that works, not over the test of time. So it's not worth the risk at this point, in my mind. Yep. One other anecdote, having, um, I think, some interaction with what's happening in, in the prop trading community, I've heard, and this is purely anecdotal, that they're generally thinking two different ways to approach, for instance, high-frequency trading. And this is not necessarily talking about whether you're a passive or aggressive market maker. But one is to develop thousands of machine-learned concepts, throw them against the wall, see what works, start allocating more of your capital on an intersecond basis to the ones that work. But the most successful HFT firms out there and the ones that are garnering, I suppose, the most momentum and putting some of the others out of business still derive all their methodologies around intuition, which is stunning. I mean, here are the shops that theoretically uh, we all here do extremely well, make money every day. I think the very best ones are still deploying logic that's intuition-based, so that's pretty interesting. On that note, Marty, Grant, and Mike, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and opinions on managed futures. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation today. And to our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you're able to take something from today's conversation with you as you continue your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. From me, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, thanks for listening. And I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.